You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church and so glad that you have joined us. Uh, Hey, let me uh, make a couple of uh, quick announcements before I get into the message. The first is this, that uh, you might see Joel walking around with the camera. He's right there. Uh, Don't be weirded out by that. We're putting together a little intro video for uh, our website, and so he's capturing some footage this morning, but uh, he's not some kind of weirdo, and so, uh, you know, just letting you know. Um, Second thing is, I'm going to just start right off the bat, ask you guys to extend me a little grace this morning. I've had a hard week. Uh, My dad... Had, uh, uh, had, uh, had cancer last year, uh, found out his cancer has returned. He had surgery on Tuesday to remove a mass on his uh, right side, uh, attached to his small intestine, and then also had to remove his spleen as well uh, because there's cancer in both places. And so it's been a, uh, it's been a emotional week, spent a lot of time with him up at the hospital this week. And uh, though I have been able to uh, give a decent amount of time to the message, uh, all my time has been very clouded in my thinking. And so uh, if, I, if I don't make sense or if I offend you, just, just blame it on my dad having cancer and just extend grace to me, all right? So um, I want to uh, just ask you guys to be praying for my dad, for my mom who's been right by his side for uh, this whole last uh, week. If never, I think she's left the hospital one time, so uh, she's you know, right there. Um, and he's still in the hospital, probably be there for a few more days. And we're waiting on the pathology reports to get the full scope of all that stuff. So you just pray for full healing. I really appreciate that. Let me pray for this morning, and then we'll jump into the message. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak this morning. And I just feel uh, my utter dependence on you. Um, Lord, I uh, ask that you would uh, speak through your word. Help me not say anything that you wouldn't have me say. Pray that you'd give us all ears to hear what you have to say. And that we would be reminded of just how great you are and how uh, worthy you are uh, of our faithfulness in, spite, uh, in light of how faithful you are to us. And I pray that you help us navigate how to love people well in our culture while remaining faithful to you. You teach us that uh, more about that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, um... We're going to continue our series in the book of Daniel, and we've been in this the last couple of weeks. We're going to be in it this fall through uh, the, for six weeks, going through the first six chapters uh, in the book of Daniel, and, and we're doing that in order to uh, learn how to do two challenging things at the same time. And those two challenging things are, uh, first, to how to remain faithful to our God while at the same time loving our culture, loving our city, loving the people here really well. People who maybe don't know our God, don't acknowledge him or share his values. How do we remain faithful in the midst of that kind of culture while loving people well? Not hiding from them, you know, or not not engaging our culture just to judge or condemn it. I mean, we don't want to do that, but how do we engage it to love and serve it and, and as well as point it towards truth. And so that's the two challenging things we're trying to figure out how to do and learn in and grow in and apply. And so we've turned to the book of Daniel to learn from that because uh, Daniel and uh, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will take center stage in the chapter that we're going to look at this morning, they faced uh, similar challenges 
to what we face, albeit their, their challenges were a little more severe. Uh, stakes were a little bit higher than what we're having to face in, uh, in America. Uh, thank God for that. But they still face similar challenges. Their challenges were that uh, if, if you weren't here with us the first couple of weeks just to, to catch you up or just to remind you that, uh, that have been here the last few weeks, like remember, their challenge is this, is that the book of Daniel begins with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire besieging Jerusalem and conquering it and then uh, taking the, many of the influential people in Jerusalem uh, into exile, bringing them into Babylon. And that included Daniel and included his three friends who were about 15 at the time. And so they all of a sudden find themselves as exiles in a strange land, a strange city, strange culture that, that does not believe in or know their God and doesn't share their values. And yet they've been told by God in Jeremiah 29 that they would be uh, sent to exile to seek the peace and prosperity of that city, to help the city know who he is. And to know how he loves them. And so they know that they're there on purpose. And so they're trying to stay faithful to God and yet lovingly engage their city well, seeking its peace and prosperity and pointing it to God. And so like, there's a lot from their situation that we can learn from to know how to navigate living faithfully with God while loving people well. And so that's why we're studying that. And today we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 3. So if you want to go there in your Bible, pull it up on your phone. That's where we'll be this morning. And as you go there, let me just say that uh, in this passage, what we're confronted with this morning in chapter 3 is a big tension for people who are seeking to follow God in a culture that's like ours and that's like uh, Babylon's, what Babylon was. And that tension is this. How do we remain faithful to God while living in a pluralistic society? You know, how do we live faithful to God in a place, in a society that, that says, okay, there's lots of gods and no one, no one view of God is right or wrong. It's just they're all equal. They're all valid and all the religions are equal and valid like a pluralistic society. How do we, how do we live faithfully, remain faithful to God while loving and serving a pluralistic society? You see, Daniel 3 services a big issue confronting us today. You know, we live in a culture that so strongly values uh, tolerance while still, uh, and yet in that, how do we hold true to, to what we believe when it sometimes will feel like what we believe might be viewed as intolerant? Like I have so many friends, some of which uh, are here in this room, and I'm so glad that, you, that you're here, uh, but they have said to me things like this. You know, the problem I have with, with Christianity is that given everything we know about the world now and how interconnected the world is and all the things we know that everyone believes, like, like how in the world can you hold to the view that, that you know, the Christian view of God is the right view of God and that how to, how to relate to God, the, the, how, what Christianity says is right compared to what others say. Like how, how can you hold to that view? I mean, it just feels so intolerant. I mean, I, I just want you to know, like, I get that. I get, the, I get how that pushes against our culture and, and what we feel is, is right. I, I understand that what Jesus says in John 14, 6, when he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Like, I, I get that to believe that in our day and age just feels so intolerant, so exclusive, so uh, d- divisive. 
I get that, that perhaps it even for some of you and for many in our culture, it, it feels uh, dangerous to believe that because it, it's, it's from that view that you can then seek to op- oppress others or coerce others or try to, uh, you know, take a, like a totalitarian approach against others. And like all of that just, I, I get it. Like we, that feels, it, it rubs against our culture, doesn't it? And our culture doesn't want that kind of oppression, doesn't want kind of, that kind of divisiveness, and guys, nor should it, and nor should we, right? And so in our, the mantra, uh, one of the big mantras of Austin, not just here in Austin, but one of the big mantras of Austin is, is, is this, to, to coexist, right? I mean, you see these bumper stickers, uh, you know, everywhere you drive, and, and um, like, what, what should, how should Christians, how should the church, you know, respond to that kind of idea, well, I would propose at least two different ways we should respond to this. The idea that can't, can't people from all different religions and all different views, can't, they just, can't you just all get along? <laughs> to that idea, we would say, yes, and we want that. We are for coexisting with people who believe differently, who disagree with us, who, who don't see who God is the same way we see who God is. Like we want us to be able to coexist, to get along. We want to be friends with our neighbors who don't have to share the same beliefs that we share, or our classmates who don't share the same beliefs we share. Well, yes, we should get along. So yes, we are for that. We affirm that desire. And the other thing that we should say in response to that idea is we should ask the question, How? Like, we want that, but how do we go about finding a way for people from all different religious views and all different ethnicities and all different cultures? Like, how do we, how do we peacefully coexist? Like, what will lead to peaceful coexistence? And the passage that we're going to look at this morning in Daniel 3 puts forth two, two potential answers to the question, how how do we get to where we peacefully coexist with people from all different religious views and cultures and all that kind of stuff? And so I want us to look at what this passage teaches about these two potential options of, of how. And what, but what's interesting is what you'll see here is that the, the, the first answer is going that even though this was written about 2,500 years ago, the book of Daniel was, the, the first answer that's put forward sounds extremely modern. And the second answer it gives is going to feel very counterintuitive. See, the first answer will appear tolerant on the surface, but underneath it, you're going to find that there's a, there's a note of intolerance to it. And the second answer, it's going to appear intolerant on the surface. And yet, it leads to something even better than tolerance. And so, let's jump in to see how we can remain faithful to God while loving and engaging a pluralistic society. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to just read most of uh, 1 through 6. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, which uh, if you're not familiar with cubits, uh, that just means this was really tall. It was a big, tall, about 90-foot tall statue. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And he, he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And then verse 3 says that all those people, and I list them all again, showed up. All right, so I'm not going to read that. Then the herald, in verse 4, loudly proclaimed, once everyone is there, he says, nations and peoples of every language. Because there's like all of the nations that Babylon had conquered. 
were there represented. So, I mean, you've got all different peoples there, all different languages, nations of peoples all of every language. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. All right, now, <laughs> that last line, that doesn't, that doesn't sound very tolerant, does it? <laughs> you know, you can believe this or I'm going to throw you into a furnace. But um, what I want you to see is that even though that, that part doesn't sound very tolerant, these verses actually do reveal King Nebuchadnezzar's strategy to get people to, post, to peacefully coexist together in the Babylon, Babylonian Empire. And here, just simply put, here is his strategy. Here's his answer for how can, we, how can we coexist peacefully together? His strategy is this, peaceful coexistence by or through religious pluralism. Peaceful coexistence by, in this case, enforcing religious pluralism. And see, he does that by setting up this giant image of gold and then commanding everyone to worship it. And again, I know like, commanding someone to worship something does not sound tolerant or pluralistic. But, but here's, here's the key. You have to notice what is not included in his command to worship this image. See, what's not included in this command is to worship it only. That's key. That's really important to recognize. Because, I mean, the king certainly could have made that the decree. I've created this giant golden statue. This is going to be the thing that I want everybody in this empire to worship and only this thing. But that is not what he says. And here's why. Just put yourself in King Nebuchadnezzar's shoes for a minute. See, he was a king of a vast empire that had conquered many nations and that was made up of all kinds of people and religions and ethnicities. So how do you get all these people to, you know, to peacefully coexist? Well, apparently he figured that the only way there can be peace in a vast multicultural empire like that, where everyone has their own god or gods, is if no one believes that their god is the only god. That their, like, that their god is the only true god that their faith is the only true faith. For if people will start holding exclusive views about their God being the only true God, that could be, in his mind, that could be the thing that leads to division and then perhaps oppression and people failing to be appropriated into the Babylonian culture. And so he sets up this giant golden image and he commands everyone from all the nations they conquered, all these different languages, to come to it and worship it, hear this, in addition to their gods, as a way to make sure no one holds two exclusive religious views. That if they can rally around this thing in addition to theirs, that's what's going to be like a glue within the empire that would help this empire last. And again, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is really all about. In fact, I don't have time to get into it, but people have also been wondering, what is this golden statue? And it's really interesting. No, it never says. It just calls it this, this golden image. It doesn't say image of what? Some think maybe of the king or some of, of maybe one of the Babylonian gods. But it, if it was that, it would have said that. It doesn't say that. 
What we, most people think is that this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar's reaction from Daniel chapter 2. If you remember what Justin taught last week, he had this like, crazy dream, and there's this large statue, and, and that Nebuchadnezzar did not learn his lesson from that statue. And so he decides, from that dream, so he decides to build a giant golden statue to, to show that, man, my kingdom is going to last and everyone's going to rally around and worship this thing as the glue that's going to help my kingdom last because this will keep there from being division if I can make sure that no one holds to their own exclusive views about who God is or the gods, all this stuff. We'll rally around this. This will be the thing. And so he sets it up for people to come and worship. And again, his strategy is peaceful coexistence through religious pluralism. Now, it's pretty interesting that the king's thinking here is both extremely ancient and extremely modern, isn't it? For a strategy to bring about peaceful coexistence is now the pro- predominant strategy of our day, is it not? I mean, UT students, do you not hear this taught? I mean, this is taught in almost all academic higher learning institutions across our nation. That when we're taught that it, it, it we're, what we're taught is that it's completely fine to believe in a God or to be religious as long as you don't cross, cross the line of thinking that your God is the only God and that your religion is the only true religion. Which is why if you cross that line, then you're going to feel people push back on that. And sometimes pretty strongly. For in the eyes of our culture, if you cross that line, you are divisive, you are Oppressive, perhaps you might be dangerous. That's why, yeah, I've had so many conversations with, with neighbors. Perhaps you've had conversations like this as well where, you know, you're, you're talking to them about Jesus and how Jesus has changed your life and how Jesus is good news to you. And in that, you know, the conversation with my neighbors, it pretty much always goes this way. that, that They are just so incredibly courteous and affirming. I mean, it's just encouraging conversations, fun conversations. But as soon as I begin to imply that perhaps they should consider Jesus, things can get weird, right? And walls can go up. And I mean, no one's tried to throw me into a fiery furnace. It's just things are like, okay, things have just gotten, a line has been crossed, right? You feel that? And, and, And oftentimes they'll say, I mean, you've heard this too, they'll say, hey, like, man, I'm I'm so happy you found something that's good for you. I'm so, I'm so happy you found something that works for you. But, like, you know, I've got my own stuff, and, and you've got yours, and I've got mine, and we're both good, and you don't need to try to get me to, to buy into your stuff. And, and that thinking is, is, the, is you know, this is an example of the pluralistic nature of our culture where you say, okay, it, every, everyone's take on things is equally valid and equally good, and whatever's good for you, then that's good, and whatever's good for me, then that's good. See, um, the common thought of our day, because, uh, that's the common thought of our day, because just like Daniel and his friends, we live in this pluralistic society that believes the way to get people to coexist peacefully is by letting everyone worship their own God as long as no one believes their God is exclusively the only true God and their faith as exclusively the only true faith. So as long as we can get away from exclusive views, we'll be good. We'll have peace. Now, 
I, as I know that some of y'all in this room, y'all really uh, buy into that. You, you agree with that thinking. And I know that most of the people in our city certainly buy into that and agree with that thinking. However, like, if you, if you allow me, you know, and I want to, as graciously as I can, just point out that this strategy for getting people to let go, this strategy for, for getting you know, peaceful coexistence by letting, getting people to let go of exclusive truth claims unravels as soon as you recognize that it's based on an exclusive truth claim. Like the claim is that no one's view of God is completely true. But that's an exclusive truth claim. That your view of God is the right view of God and people's view of God who would say, no, my only, only my God is the right one. That that's a wrong view of God. And if exclusive truth claims are the enemy that's keeping us from being able to co- you know, peacefully coexist with one another, then we're doomed when we are relying on an exclusive, exclusive truth claim to be the thing that gets, away, gets us away from that. You know, it's like, it's like this. If someone were to say, a Christian shouldn't believe that their God is the one true God, that person is by default implying that their more moderate view on the reality of God is actually true. Or if someone were to say, you shouldn't try to impose your views on other people, what's happening in that moment is the imposition of a view. Is it not? See, the problem is that there's no way to get away from exclusive views or claims. Even the view that everyone has a bit of the truth is a truth claim that is being pushed on others that may not agree with it. Which means that, you know, if that again, if that's the only way that we can get people to you know, peacefully coexist is by getting people to let go of exclusive truth claims, then we're doomed because you're putting forth an exclusive truth claim to get them to let go of those things. It's like, oh man, that unravels. And you see, guys, you see that actually play out in this passage where the king, in hopes of ensuring that no one holds to an exclusive truth claim about God's ultimate reality, puts forth an exclusive truth claim about God's ultimate reality. That being that there are many gods and you can worship as many as you want. They're all equally valid. Or to put it another way, he was really saying, hey, you're all free to worship it any way you want as long as it's my way. And under the veneer of tolerance is actually a note of intolerance that leads to people being excluded. And particularly in this case, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because that's what happens to them. If you go back to the passage, you pick up, uh, and, and well, let me just say, let's sum up like 8 through 12. What happens is everyone, like the music goes on, everyone bows down, and then some people notice, okay, there's the, the Jews, and we don't know if it's just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or there's a whole group of Jews that refuse to bow down. Because they come to the king and say, hey, the, the, we've got a complaint about the Jews. And then they specifically narrow into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, probably because they were in an influential position. King Nebuchadnezzar had placed them already in this influential position. And so they're upset about them because they have not bowed down to these other gods. So they, these astrologers, these Babylonian astrologers, they turn them in. They tattle on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar is furious when he hears that they refuse to bow down. So verse 13, here's where it picks, picks up. He says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, 
that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Like, I'll forgive you. We're good now. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's not a lot of pronouns used in this passage. I don't know if you noticed that. And his attitude toward them changed. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie them up and throw them into uh, the blazing furnace. So these men wearing the robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. All right. <laughs> I think that we can all agree that this thing does not look much like a tolerant society, right? A tolerant society that enables people to coexist peacefully. Underneath this tolerant position that you can worship any God you want as long as you don't hold to the view that your God is the only God was this, again, this implied intolerance for people who held to that view, resulting in these men being excluded to the point that, uh, uh, that they are thrown into a furnace. And so guys, it doesn't work. Religious pluralism as a means for peaceful coexistence, if it falls short, you end up excluding somebody. So what does work? Because, again, the idea of peaceful coexistence of people with different views and different religious views, like, that's a good thing. We, we want that society. We want to be at peace with people who we don't agree with us. But what will get us there? Well, what we see in the examples of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is another way forward. But their way seems counterintuitive. For they held on to their exclusive view of who God is, and they remained faithful to him by refusing to bow down and worship other gods. They were faithful to the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20. They said, have no other gods before me. Don't bow down and worship any image of God. And they said, okay, I'm being faithful to God. I refuse to do that. Which was, you know, looks intolerant, looks exclusive as a result. So you would think that that would not lead to peaceful coexistence either. But notice how they interacted with the king. So that, that sure looked peaceful, didn't it? Even in the face of being burned alive, they remained respectful. And how they talked to him and didn't even put up a fight saying, you know, we're not even going to defend ourselves before you. They address him as king. They address him as your majesty. I mean, just respectful, peaceful interaction. Like, what in the world would cause them to respond in that way, especially given these circumstances? 
Interestingly, what caused them to respond in this way is what they believed. See, what led them to peacefully interact with someone who disagrees with them and is about to throw them in the fire is the fact that they didn't let, not, not that they let go of what they believed, but instead they actually practiced what they believed. They, they put what they believed into practice. And that actually led to this, these peaceful interactions. See, they believed that God could rescue them, and they believed that even if God didn't rescue them, they would still ultimately be okay, for they would be brought to be with God. And they believed that there was a purpose for them being there. Again, Jeremiah 29, they understood. God has us here for a reason to seek the peace and prosperity of this city, to help this city know God. And so we're going to believe that God can do that through this. And if God chooses to do that by delivering us through this fire, that he's going to make himself known. And if God doesn't deliver us through this fire, if he does not, as he says, then God will somehow use that to make him known. This is what they believed about God. So it led them to interact peacefully all the way to what appeared to be the very end. And friends, let me tell you, if we hold on to our faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're a brother and sister in Christ, and you hold on to your faith in Jesus, the same will be true for us in our pluralistic society. That if you hold faithful and practice it faithfully, then you could even say that this would be true for us to a greater degree than it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because we know in full what they only knew in part. See, what's the essence of the Christian faith? Is it not God loving his enemies, loving those who opposed him to the point of God the Son, Jesus Christ, dying for them? You see, if Christians live out the core of what we believe, it results in us loving our enemies, serving those who disagree with us or oppose us. For, what it, for that is what Jesus did for us. And at the very heart of what we believe is that God is God the Son being hung on a cross, and and instead of lashing out, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I love how Tim Keller says this in his book, Reason for God. Let me just quote him. He says, at the heart of the Christian's view of, of spiritual reality is a man who gave his life and sacrifice for people who did not believe in him. A man who died asking for forgiveness for the people who were killing him. Therefore, Christianity is an exclusive claim. But it's the most inclusive, exclusive claim. Because it wants you to exclusively believe in this man who died for his enemies and asked you to love and care for your enemies. So does the message of Jesus, so does the message that Jesus is the only way to God necessarily lead to intolerance? Christians can only become intolerant to the degree that they misunderstand the heart of the gospel. Namely, the good news that Almighty God himself came to serve us and die for us. So we could be saved, not because of our right beliefs and behavior, but by the gift of his unmerited grace. That message, rightly grasped, cannot lead to coercion or intolerance. The gospel has within it a deep resource for humility and respect. And so friends, when we faithfully hold on to what we believe, and we live out what we believe, even though from the outside it seems intolerant, it actually leads to something better than tolerance. 
It leads to love and service of those who disagree with us and even those who may seek to harm us because that's what Jesus did for us. But let's be honest. Loving and serving people who disagree with us or oppose us isn't easy. And holding faithfully to what we believe and remaining faithful to God in the midst of the pressures we feel living in a pluralistic society is not easy. So what will enable us to do that? Well, there's one more character that shows up in this chapter. He shows up in this story. He's actually the hero of the story. And he is the one who can enable us to withstand the furnaces and the challenges that we face when we seek to remain faithful to him while loving our culture well. And so I want you to look at this. Pick back up in verse 24, which is right after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has been thrown in the furnace. The very next verse says this. Then, the, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the state traps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, and their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. And defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. This is amazing, isn't it? I mean, this is certainly miraculous. This is a miraculous story. But in this story, like this fourth man appears in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this fourth man's presence in the fire is what protects them to the point that when they come out of the fire, they're unharmed, unsinged, unaffected. And so the question that, you know, this begs is like, well, who was that fourth man? And I wish I had time. I don't have time to give you all the reason why I'm going to say what I'm about to say. But I would love to talk with you about it afterwards. And I'd love to talk to any of this stuff that I said afterwards and, and, and um, you know, try to clarify if I've said anything poorly. Uh, but, yeah, I'll be up here afterwards. But here, here's who I believe this person is. And I'm not alone in this. Most, m- many people believe this. But the, the, the fourth man is, well, Nebuchadnezzar almost got it right. He says, it's looking like the sons of the God, son of the gods. But he's a little bit too pluralistic in that statement. (laughs) If he's just looking like the son of God. And I believe this fourth man is Jesus himself, pre-incarnate Christ. That he shows up here to protect his faithful followers and help them through this fire for the purpose of revealing himself to the king to say that he really is the one true God, which as you see his Nebuchadnezzar's announcement at the end, he, he, he's beginning to recognize. He doesn't fully get it. We'll find that out in the next chapter. But he's beginning to recognize like this, there is a, there is a most high God. And Jesus shows up to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar and to these you know, royal authorities within Babylon. And he does it by helping these three 
through the fire, meeting them in it, seeing them through it. Man, I I think about what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they were not, uh, when uh, they're facing the fire, and they're, they said they're not going to defend themselves to the king because they believed God could deliver them and would deliver them. And I wonder if what they were thinking about at that time was Isaiah 43. See, Isaiah 43, verse 1 says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And though, see, they did not presume that God would save them in this way. I mean, they even said, even if he does not, we will still not bow. But I think it was their faith that God could save them, that he would eventually save them, that allowed them to have peace in this moment and see, see this through and remain faithful all the way to the end. That they knew that God would do what God determined was best in order to make himself known for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, to fill the, the Babylonian empire as the waters cover the sea. And so they said, I want to be a part of that. And that's what God did. And knowing that that's who God was enabled them to be loving all the way to the fire and loving when they come out of it as well. Friends, here's what I think will help us, what will enable us to remain faithful to God while we seek to love people well in our pluralistic uh, culture, even when it may cost us something. It is a faith in our Savior who has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us who has promised that even when times are hard and it feels like friends are abandoning us for what we believe or we're being ostracized for what we believe, he will never leave us. He will walk with us through those fires for he has called you by name and you are his. And the reason we can have utmost confidence that Jesus will always walk with us through our personal fires is entirely because we know he has already walked through the ultimate fire for us. For on the cross, when Jesus died for us, the holy and just wrath of God was poured out on him instead of us. And the fire of God's righteous judgment fell on him instead of us. And because he did that on our behalf, we are promised that the ultimate fire will not burn us, and the ultimate flames will not consume us. For he is our Lord and God, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior. And so, guys, how can we remain faithful to him? It's by remembering his incredible faithfulness to us. And how can we love those who oppose or disagree with us? It's by remembering how he loved and served us when we were his enemies. And then by relying on him to now love others through us so that they too, like King Nebuchadnezzar, can experience the reality of the Most High God and that they can come to know him. So this morning we're going to take communion. We're going to by taking communion as we do every Sunday. We have elements up here in the front and in the back. Uh, if you've placed your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you're welcome to come and take communion. We just ask that you believe what you're taking. Um, but as we take communion, here's what I want to encourage you to do, is to remember Jesus' body broken for us, 
and his blood spilled for us to save us from the ultimate fire and to bring us into his loving arms. And as we remember that, let his gracious faithfulness to us compel us to remain faithful to him. That even now as you take this, may you choose to commit or to recommit today. God, I choose to be faithful to you in light of your faithfulness to me. And may his sacrificial love for you while you were his enemies compel you to commit today to love everyone with him no matter what they believe or how they treat you, so that they too may perhaps come to know him. May his sacrificial and faithful love for us move us to remain faithful to him while loving people well. Let me pray. Father God, we ask that you would, even as we reflect on this passage, as we take communion, compel our hearts to greater faithfulness to you, and a greater commitment to join you in loving others and allow you to do that through us. And God, I would pray that you would make us peacemakers or that we would be people that uh, uh, worship only you and love people really well. Now, we need your spirit. We need you in order to do this. So we cry out to you in dependence. And we thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And that though we fell in this, his love is unconditional and he's covered our sin. Lord, he's saved us from the fire. So God, we, we rejoice in that. And we ask that uh, you would uh, help us more fully believe it and that would spur on both faithfulness and love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.